Section 8 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 3, Part 1. Regeneration by Faith, of Repentance. This chapter is divided into five parts. 1. The title of the chapter seems to promise a treatise on faith, but the only subject here considered is repentance, the inseparable attendant of faith. And first, various opinions on the subject of repentance are stated, sections 1 through 4. 2. An exposition of the orthodox doctrine of repentance, sections 5 through 9. 3. Reasons why repentance must be prolonged to the last moment of life, sections 10 through 14. 4. Of the fruits of repentance, or its object and tendency, sections 15 through 20. 5. The source whence repentance proceeds, sections 21 through 24. Of the sin against the Holy Spirit and the impenitence of the reprobate, section 25. Sections. 1. Connection of this chapter with the previous one and the subsequent chapters. Repentance follows faith and is produced by it. Reason. Error of those who take a contrary view. 2. Their first objection. Answer. In what sense the origin of repentance ascribed to faith. Cause of the erroneous idea that faith is produced by repentance. Refutation of it. The hypocrisy of monks and Anabaptists in assigning limits to repentance exposed. 3. A second opinion concerning repentance considered. 4. A third opinion assigning two forms to repentance, a legal and an evangelical, examples of each. 5. The orthodox doctrine of repentance. 1. Faith and repentance to be distinguished, not confounded or separated. 2. A consideration of the name. 3. A definition of the thing, or what repentance is. Doctrine of the prophets and apostles. 6. Explanation of the definition. This consists of three parts. 1. Repentance is a turning of our life unto God. This described and enlarged upon. 7. 2. Repentance produced by fear of God. Hence the mention of divine judgment by the prophets and apostles. Example. Exposition of the second branch of the definition from a passage in Paul. Why the fear of God is the first part of repentance. 8. 3. Repentance consists in the mortification of the flesh and the quickening of the spirit. These required by the prophets. They are explained separately. 9. How this mortification and quickening are produced. Repentance just a renewal of the divine image in us not completed in a moment, but extends to the last moment of life. 10. Reasons why repentance must so extend. Augustine's opinion as to concupiscence in the regenerate examined. A passage of Paul which seems to confirm that opinion. 11. Answer. Confirmation of the answer by the apostle himself. Another confirmation from a precept of the law. Conclusion. 12. Exception, 
that those desires only are condemned which are repugnant to the order of God, desires not condemned in so far as natural, but in so far as inordinate. This held by Augustine. 13. Passages from Augustine to show that this was his opinion. Objection from a passage in James. 14. Another objection of the Anabaptists and Libertines to the continuance of repentance throughout the present life. An answer disclosing its impiety. Another answer founded on the absurdities to which it leads. A third answer contrasting sincere Christian repentance with the erroneous view of the objectors. Conformation from the example and declaration of an apostle. 15. Of the fruits of repentance, carefulness, excuse, indignation, fear, desire, zeal, revenge. Moderation to be observed, as most sagely counseled by Bernard. 16. Internal fruits of repentance. 1. Piety towards God. 2. Charity towards man. 3. Purity of life. How carefully these fruits are commended by the prophets. External fruits of repentance. Bodily exercises too much commended by ancient writers. Twofold excess in regard to them. 17. Delusion of some who consider these external exercises as the chief part of repentance. Why received in the Jewish church? The legitimate use of these exercises in the Christian church. 18. The principal part of repentance consists in turning to God. Confession and acknowledgement of sins. What their nature should be. Distinction between ordinary and special repentance. Use of this distinction. 19. End of repentance. Its nature shown by the preaching of John Baptist, our Savior and his apostles. The sum of this preaching. 20. Christian repentance terminates with our life. 21. Repentance has its origin in the grace of God as communicated to the elect, whom God is pleased to save from death. The hardening and final impenitence of the reprobate. A passage of an apostle as to voluntary reprobates gives no countenance to the Novadians. 22. Of the sin against the Holy Ghost. The true definition of this sin as proved and explained by Scripture. Who they are that sin against the Holy Spirit. Examples. 1. The Jews resisting Stephen. 2. The Pharisees. Definition confirmed by the example of Paul. 23. Why that sin unpardonable? The paralogism of the Novadians in resting the words of the Apostle examined. Two passages from the same Apostle. 24. First objection to the above doctrine. Answer. Solution of a difficulty founded on the example of Esau and the threatening of a prophet. Second objection. 25. Third objection founded on the seeming approval of the feigned repentance of the ungodly as Ahab. Answer. Confirmation from the example of Esau. Why God bears for a time with the ungodly pretending repentance. Exception. 1. Although we have already in some measure shown how faith possesses Christ and gives us the enjoyment of his benefits, the subject would still be obscure were we not to add an exposition of the effects resulting from it. The sum of the gospel is, 
not without good reason, made to consist in repentance and forgiveness of sins. And, therefore, where these two heads are omitted, any discussion concerning faith will be meagre and defective, and indeed almost useless. Now, since Christ confers upon us, and we obtain by faith, both free reconciliation and newness of life, reason and order require that I should here begin to treat of both. The shortest transition, however, will be from faith to repentance. For repentance being properly understood, it will better appear how a man is justified freely by faith alone, and yet that holiness of life, real holiness, as it is called, is inseparable from the free imputation of righteousness. That repentance not only always follows faith, but is produced by it, ought to be without controversy. For since pardon and forgiveness are offered by the preaching of the gospel, in order that the sinner, delivered from the tyranny of Satan, the yoke of sin, and the miserable bondage of iniquity, may pass into the kingdom of God, it is certain that no man can embrace the grace of the gospel without retaking himself from the errors of his former life into the right path, and making it his whole study to practice repentance. Those who think that repentance precedes faith, instead of flowing from, or being produced by it, as the fruit by the tree, have never understood its nature, and are moved to adopt that view on very insufficient grounds. 2. Christ and John, it is said, in their discourses, first exhort the people to repentance, and then add that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2, 4, verse 17. Such, too, is the message which the apostles received, and such the course which Paul followed, as is narrated by Luke, Acts 20, verse 21. But clinging superstitiously to the juxtaposition of the syllables, they attend not to the coherence of meaning in the words. For when our Lord and John begin their preaching thus, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, verse 2, do they not deduce repentance as a consequence of the offer of grace and promise of salvation? The force of the words, therefore, is the same as if it were said, As the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for that reason repent. For Matthew, after relating that John so preached, says that therein was fulfilled the prophecy concerning the voice of one crying in the desert, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Isaiah 40, verse 3. But in the prophet, that voice is ordered to commence with consolation and glad tidings. Still, when we attribute the origin of repentance to faith, we do not dream of some period of time in which faith is to give birth to it. We only wish to show that a man cannot seriously engage in repentance unless he know that he is of God but no man is truly persuaded that he is of God until he have embraced his offered favor. These things will be more clearly explained as we proceed. Some are perhaps misled by this, that not a few are subdued by terror of conscience, or disposed to obedience before they have been imbued with a knowledge, nay, before they have had any taste of the divine favor. This is that initial fear which some writers class among the virtues, because they think it approximates to true and genuine obedience. But we are not here considering the various modes in which Christ draws us to himself, or prepares us for the study of piety. All I say is, 
that no righteousness can be found where the spirit whom christ received in order to communicate it to his members reigns not then according to the passage in the psalms there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared psalm one thirty verse four no man will ever reverence god who does not trust that god is propitious to him no man will ever willingly set himself to observe the law who is not persuaded that his services are pleasing to god the indulgence of god in tolerating and pardoning our iniquities is a sign of paternal favor this is also clear from the exhortation in hosea quote, come and let us return unto the lord for he has torn and he will heal us he has smitten and he will bind us up hosea six verse one the hope of pardon is employed as a stimulus to prevent us from becoming reckless in sin but there is no semblance of reason in the absurd procedure of those who that they may begin with repentance prescribe to their neophytes certain days during which they are to exercise themselves in repentance and after these are elapsed admit them to communion in gospel grace i allude to great numbers of anabaptists those of them especially who plume themselves on being spiritual and their associates the jesuits and others of the same stamp such are the fruits which their giddy spirit produces that repentance which in every christian man lasts as long as life is with them completed in a few short days three certain learned men who lived long before the present days and were desirous to speak simply and sincerely according to the rule of scripture held that repentance consists of two parts mortification and quickening by mortification they mean grief of soul and terror produced by a conviction of sin and a sense of the divine judgment for when a man is brought to a knowledge of sin he begins truly to hate and abominate sin he also is sincerely dissatisfied with himself confesses that he is lost and undone and wishes he were different from what he is moreover when he is touched with some sense of the divine justice for the one conviction immediately follows the other he lies terror-struck and amazed humbled and dejected desponds and despairs this which they regarded as the first part of repentance they usually termed contrition by quickening they mean the comfort which is produced by faith as when a man prostrated by a consciousness of sin and smitten with the fear of god afterwards beholding his goodness and the mercy grace and salvation obtained through christ looks up begins to breathe takes courage and passes as it were from death unto life i admit that these terms when rightly interpreted aptly enough express the power of repentance only i cannot assent to their using the term quickening for the joy which the soul feels after being calmed from perturbation and fear it more properly means that desire of pious and holy living which springs from the new birth as if it were said that the man dies to himself that he may begin to live unto god four others seeing that the term is used in scripture in different senses have set down two forms of repentance and in order to distinguish them have called the one legal repentance or that by which the sinner stung with the sense of his sin and overwhelmed with fear of the divine anger remains in that state of perturbation unable to escape from it 
the other they term evangelical repentance or that by which the sinner though grievously downcast in himself yet looks up and sees in christ the cure of his wound the solace of his terror the haven of rest from his misery they give cain saul and judas as examples of legal repentance scripture in describing what is called their repentance means that they perceived the heinousness of their sins and dreaded the divine anger but thinking only of god as a judge and avenger were overwhelmed by the thought their repentance therefore was nothing better than a kind of threshold to hell into which having entered even in the present life they began to endure the punishment inflicted by the presence of an offended god examples of evangelical repentance we see in all those who first stung with a sense of sin but afterwards raised and revived by confidence in the divine mercy turned unto the lord hezekiah was frightened on receiving the message of his death but praying with tears and beholding the divine goodness regained his confidence the ninevites were terrified at the fearful announcement of their destruction but clothing themselves in sackcloth and ashes they prayed hoping that the lord might relent and avert his anger from them david confessed that he had sinned greatly in numbering the people but added quote, now i beseech thee o lord take away the iniquity of thy servant quote. when rebuked by nathan he acknowledged the crime of adultery and humbled himself before the lord but he at the same time looked for pardon similar was the repentance of those who stung to the heart by the preaching of peter yet trusted in the divine goodness and added quote, men and brethren what shall we do End quote. similar was the case of peter himself who indeed wept bitterly but ceased not to hope five though all this is true yet the term repentance in so far as i can ascertain from scripture must be differently taken for in comprehending faith under repentance they are at variance with what paul says in the acts as to his quote, testifying both to the jews and also to the greeks repentance toward god and faith toward our lord jesus christ acts twenty verse twenty one here he mentions faith and repentance as two different things what then can true repentance exist without faith by no means but although they cannot be separated they ought to be distinguished as there is no faith without hope and yet faith and hope are different so repentance and faith though constantly linked together are only to be united not confounded i am not unaware that under the term repentance is comprehended the whole work of turning to god of which not the least important part is faith but in what sense this is done will be perfectly obvious when its nature and power shall have been explained the term repentance is derived in the hebrew from conversion or turning again and in the greek from a change of mind and purpose nor is the thing meant inappropriate to both derivations for it is substantially this that withdrawing from ourselves we turn to god and laying aside the old put on a new mind wherefore it seems to me that repentance may be not inappropriately defined thus a real conversion of our life unto god proceeding from sincere and serious fear of god 
and consisting in the mortification of our flesh and the old man and the quickening of the spirit in this sense are to be understood all those addresses in which the prophets first and the apostles afterwards exhorted the people of their time to repentance the great object for which they labored was to fill them with confusion for their sins and dread of the divine judgment that they might fall down and humble themselves before him whom they had offended and with true repentance retake themselves to the right path accordingly they use indiscriminately in the same sense the expressions turning or returning to the lord repenting doing repentance whence also the sacred history describes it as repentance towards god when men who disregarded him and wantoned in their lusts began to obey his word and are prepared to go whithersoever he may call them and john baptist and paul under the expression bringing forth fruits meet for repentance described a course of life exhibiting and bearing testimony in all its actions to such a repentance six but before proceeding farther it will be proper to give a clearer exposition of the definition which we have adopted there are three things then principally to be considered in it first in the conversion of the life to god we require a transformation not only in external works but in the soul itself which is able only after it has put off its old habits to bring forth fruits conformable to its renovation the prophet intending to impress this enjoins those whom he calls to repentance to make them quote, a new heart and a new spirit ezekiel eighteen verse thirty one hence moses on several occasions when he would show how the israelites were to repent and turn to the lord tells them that it must be done with the whole heart and the whole soul a mode of expression of frequent recurrence in the prophets and by terming it the circumcision of the heart points to the internal affections but there is no passage better fitted to teach us the genuine nature of repentance than the following quote, if thou wilt return o israel saith the lord return unto me end quote. Quote, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns circumcise yourselves to the lord and take away the foreskins of your heart end quote. Jeremiah 4 verses 1 through 4. See how he declares to them that it will be of no avail to commence the study of righteousness unless impiety shall first have been eradicated from their inmost heart. And to malice the deeper impression, he reminds them that they have to do with God and can gain nothing by deceit because he hates a double heart. For this reason, Isaiah derides the preposterous attempts of hypocrites who zealously aimed at an external repentance by the observance of ceremonies, but in the meanwhile cared not, quote, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free. Isaiah 58, 6. In these words he admirably shows wherein the acts of unfeigned repentance consist. 7. The second part of our definition is, that repentance proceeds from a sincere fear of god before the mind of the sinner can be inclined to repentance he must be aroused by the thought of divine judgment but when once the thought that god will one day ascend his tribunal to take an account of all words and actions has taken possession of his mind 
it will not allow him to rest or have one moment's peace but will perpetually urge him to adopt a different plan of life that he may be able to stand securely at that judgment seat hence the scripture when exhorting to repentance often introduces the subject of judgment as in jeremiah quote, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings jeremiah four verse four paul in his discourse to the athenians says quote, the times of this ignorance god winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness acts seventeen verses thirty and thirty one the same thing is repeated in several other passages sometimes god is declared to be a judge from the punishments already inflicted thus leading sinners to reflect that worse awaits them if they do not quickly repent there is an example of this in the twenty-ninth chapter of deuteronomy as repentance begins with dread and hatred of sin the apostle sets down godly sorrow as one of its causes second corinthians seven verse ten by godly sorrow he means when we not only tremble at the punishment but hate and abhor the sin because we know it is displeasing to god it is not strange that this should be for unless we are stung to the quick the sluggishness of our carnal nature cannot be corrected nay no degree of pungency would suffice for our stupor and sloth did not god lift the rod and strike deeper there is moreover a rebellious spirit which must be broken as with hammers the stern threatening which god employs are extorted from him by our depraved dispositions for while we are asleep it were in vain to allure us by soothing measures passages to this effect are everywhere to be met with and i need not quote them but there is another reason why the fear of god lies at the heart of repentance that is that though the life of man were possessed of all kinds of virtue still if they do not bear reference to god how much soever they may be lauded in the world they are a mere abomination in heaven inasmuch as it is the principal part of righteousness to render to god that service and honor of which he is impiously defrauded whenever it is not our express purpose to submit to his authority eight we must now explain the third part of the definition and show what is meant when we say that repentance consists of two parts that is the mortification of the flesh and the quickening of the spirit the prophets in accommodation to a carnal people express this in simple and homely terms but clearly when they say depart from evil and do good psalm thirty four verse fourteen wash you make you clean put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes cease to do evil learn to do well seek judgment relieve the oppressed etc isaiah one verses sixteen and seventeen in dissuading us from wickedness they demand the entire destruction of the flesh which is full of perverseness and malice it is a most difficult and arduous achievement to renounce ourselves and lay aside our natural disposition for the flesh must not be thought to be destroyed unless everything that we have of our own is abolished but seeing that all the desires of the flesh are enmity against god romans eight verse seven the first step to the obedience of his law 
is the renouncement of our own nature. Renovation is afterwards manifested by the fruits produced by it, that is, justice, judgment, and mercy. Since it were not sufficient duly to perform such acts, were not the mind and heart previously endued with sentiments of justice, judgment, and mercy, this is done when the Holy Spirit, instilling his holiness into our souls, so inspired them with new thoughts and affections, that they may justly be regarded as new. And, indeed, as we are naturally averse to God, unless self-denial proceed, we shall never tend to that which is right. Since we are so often enjoined to put off the old man, to renounce the world and the flesh, to forsake our lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Moreover, the very name mortification reminds us how difficult it is to forget our former nature, because we hence infer that we cannot be trained to the fear of God, and learn the first principles of piety, unless we are violently smitten with the sword of the Spirit, and annihilated, as if God were declaring that to be ranked among his sons there must be a destruction of our ordinary nature. 9. Both of these we obtain by union with Christ. For if we have true fellowship in his death, our old man is crucified by his power, and the body of sin becomes dead, so that the corruption of our original nature is never again in full vigor. Romans 6, verses 5 and 6. If we are partakers in his resurrection, we are raised up by means of it to newness of life, which conforms us to the righteousness of God. In one word, then, by repentance I understand regeneration, the only aim of which is to form in us anew the image of God, which was sullied, and all but effaced by the transgression of Adam. So the Apostle teaches, when he says, quote, We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. End quote. Again, quote, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, end quote, and, quote, put ye on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, end quote. Again, quote, put ye on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, end quote. Accordingly, through the blessing of Christ, we are renewed by that regeneration into the righteousness of God, from which we had fallen through Adam, the Lord being pleased in this manner to restore the integrity of all whom he appoints to the inheritance of life. This renewal, indeed, is not accomplished in a moment, a day, or a year, but by uninterrupted, sometimes even by slow progress, God abolishes the remains of carnal corruption in his elect, cleanses them from pollution, and consecrates them as his temples, restoring all their inclinations to real purity, so that during their whole lives they may practice repentance, and know that death is the only termination to this warfare. The greater is the effrontery of an impure raver and apostate, named Staphylus, who pretends that I confound the condition of the present life with the celestial glory, when, after Paul, I make the image of God to consist in righteousness and true holiness as if in every definition it were not necessary to take the thing defined in its integrity and perfection. It is not denied that there is room for improvement, but what I maintain is, that the nearer any one approaches in resemblance to God, 
the more does the image of God appear in him. That believers may attain to it, God assigns repentance as the goal towards which they must keep running during the whole course of their lives. 10. By regeneration, the children of God are delivered from the bondage of sin, but not as if they had already obtained full possession of freedom, and no longer felt any annoyance from the flesh. Materials for an unremitting contest remain, that they may be exercised, and not only exercised, but may better understand their weakness. All writers of sound judgment agree in this, that, in the regenerate man, there is still a spring of evil which is perpetually sending forth desires that allure and stimulate him to sin. They also acknowledge that the saints are still so liable to the disease of concupiscence that, though opposing it, they cannot avoid being ever and anon prompted and incited to lust, avarice, ambition, or other vices. It is unnecessary to spend much time in investigating the sentiments of ancient writers. Augustine alone may suffice, as he has collected all their opinions with great care and fidelity. Any reader who is desirous to know the sense of antiquity may obtain it from him. There is this difference apparently between him and us, that while he admits that believers, so long as they are in the body, are so liable to concupiscence that they cannot but feel it, he does not venture to give this disease the name of sin. He is contented with giving it the name of infirmity, and says that it only becomes sin when either external act or consent is added to conception or apprehension, that is, when the will yields to the first desire. We again regard it as sin whenever man is influenced in any degree by any desire contrary to the will of God. Nay, we maintain that the very gravity which begets in us such desires is sin. Accordingly, we hold that there is always sin in the saints until they are freed from their mortal frame, because depraved concupiscence resides in their flesh and is at variance with rectitude. Augustine himself does not always refrain from using the name of sin, as when he says, quote, Paul gives the name of sin to that carnal concupiscence from which all sins arise. This, in regard to the saints, loses its dominion in this world, and is destroyed in heaven. In these words, he admits that believers, in so far as they are liable to carnal concupiscence, are chargeable with sin. 11. When it is said that God purifies his church so as to be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that he promises this cleansing by means of baptism and performs it in his elect, I understand that reference is made to the guilt rather than to the matter of sin. In regenerating his people, God indeed accomplishes this much for them. He destroys the dominion of sin by supplying the agency of the Spirit, which enables them to come off victorious from the contest. Sin, however, though it ceases to reign, ceases not to dwell in them. Accordingly, though we say that the old man is crucified, and the law of sin is abolished in the children of God, Romans 6, verse 6, the remains of sin survive, not to have dominion, but to humble them under a consciousness of their infirmity. We admit that these remains, just as if they had no existence, are not imputed, but we at the same time 
contend that it is owing to the mercy of God that the saints are not charged with the guilt which would otherwise make them sinners before God. It will not be difficult for us to confirm this view, seeing we can support it by clear passages of Scripture. How can we express our view more plainly than Paul does in Romans 7 verse 6? We have elsewhere shown, and Augustine by solid reasons proves, that Paul is there speaking in the person of a regenerated man. I say nothing as to his use of the words evil and sin. However those who object to our view may quibble on these words, can any man deny that aversion to the law of God is an evil, and that hindrance to righteousness is sin? In short, who will not admit that there is guilt where there is spiritual misery? But all these things Paul affirms of his disease. Again, the law furnishes us with a clear demonstration by which the whole question may be quickly disposed of. We are enjoined to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. Since all the faculties of our soul ought thus to be engrossed with the love of God, it is certain that the commandment is not fulfilled by those who receive the smallest desire into their heart, or admit into their minds any thought whatever which may lead them away from the love of God to vanity. What then? Is it not through the faculties of mind that we are assailed with sudden motions, that we perceive sensual or form conceptions of mental objects? Since these faculties give admission to vain and wicked thoughts, do they not show that to that extent they are devoid of the love of God? He, then, who admits not that all the desires of the flesh are sins, and that that disease of concupiscence, which they call a stimulus, is a fountain of sin, must of necessity deny that the transgression of the law is sin. 12. If any one thinks it is absurd thus to condemn all the desires by which man is naturally affected, seeing they have been implanted by God, the author of nature, we answer that we by no means condemn those appetites which God so implanted in the mind of man at his first creation, that they cannot be eradicated without destroying human nature itself, but only the violent lawless movements which war with the order of God. But as, in consequence of the corruption of nature, all our faculties are so vitiated and corrupted, that a perpetual disorder and excess is apparent in all our actions, and as the appetites cannot be separated from this excess, we maintain that therefore they are vicious, or, to give the substance in fewer words, we hold that all human desires are evil, and we charge them with sin, not in as far as they are natural, but because they are inordinate, and inordinate because nothing pure and upright can proceed from a corrupt and polluted nature. Nor does Augustine depart from this doctrine in reality so much as in appearance. From an excessive dread of the invidious charge with which the Pelagians assailed him, he sometimes refrains from using the term sin in this sense. But when he says that the law of sin remaining in the saints, the guilt only is taken away, he shows clearly enough that his view is not very different from ours. 13. We will produce some other passages to make it more apparent what his sentiments were. In his second book against Julian, he says, quote, This law of sin is both remitted in spiritual regeneration and remains in the mortal flesh, remitted because the guilt is forgiven in the sacrament by which believers are regenerated, 
and yet remains, inasmuch as it produces desires against which believers fight. Quote. Again, quote, therefore the law of sin, which was in the members of this great apostle also, is forgiven in baptism, not ended. End quote. Again, quote, the law of sin, the guilt of which, though remaining, is forgiven in baptism, Ambrose called iniquity, for it is iniquitous for the flesh to lust against the spirit. End quote. Again, quote, sin is dead in the guilt by which it bound us, and until it is cured by the perfection of burial, though dead it rebels. End quote. In the fifth book he says still more plainly, quote, as blindness of heart is the sin by which God is not believed, and the punishment of sin by which a proud heart is justly punished, and the cause of sin, when through the error of a blinded heart any evil is committed, so the lust of the flesh, against which the good spirit wars, is also sin, because disobedient to the authority of the mind, and the punishment of sin, because the recompense rendered for disobedience, and the cause of sin, consenting by revolt or springing up through contamination. He here without ambiguity calls it sin, because the Pelagian heresy being now refuted, and the sound doctrine confirmed, he was less afraid of calumny. Thus also, in his forty-first homily on John, where he speaks his own sentiments without controversy, he says, quote, If with the flesh you serve the law of sin, do what the apostle himself says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Romans 6.12 He does not say, let it not be, but let it not reign. As long as you live, there must be sin in your members, but at least let its dominion be destroyed. Do not what it orders. Those who maintain that concupiscence is not sin, are wont to found on the passage of James, quote, Then, when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, James 1.15. But this is easily refuted, for unless we understand him as speaking only of wicked works or actual sins, even a wicked inclination will not be accounted sin. But from his calling crimes and wicked deeds the fruits of lust, and also giving them the name of sins, it does not follow that the lust itself is not an evil, and in the sight of God deserving of condemnation. End of section 8